When I was young, I learned that love was all about romantic comedies, Valentine's Day, chocolate, and flowers. A lot of capitalist heterosexual BS. Now I know that real love is ferocious, it's terrifying, and it's a catalyst for change. I'm Ethan Lipsitz, and I created Love Extremist Radio as a platform to engage with people who are on the front lines of wrestling with and redefining love on their terms. They're activists, artists, and creators, all making change in their communities and the world. Thanks for being here. Together, let's define what it means to be a love extremist. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Love is the truth. Hey, everybody. I am here with Jacob Patterson, and Hello. we... Hey, hey. <laughs> we <laughs> recorded our episode together, what, like a month ago now, um, when it was just maybe maybe three weeks, just the beginning of Uprising starting to show up on the streets of downtown L.A., and we wanted to just check in before we set the episode live because a lot has changed, and even our thoughts and, and feelings about some of the conversation has changed. Um, and we also want to clarify some things. So let's jump into it. Jacob, yeah, you man. kick us happy, off? Happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth. Yeah. Yeah. I think we recorded maybe a week before the first uh, protest in downtown LA. People were already really upset about what happened with George Floyd, but it wasn't popping off yet. Right. And um, it, it got kind of like, LA 92, which I think we even mentioned on this podcast, mm -hmm. um, relatively quickly. So yeah, I'm happy, uh, to be able to clarify and thank you for, for bringing me on here again. For sure. Um, so one question I wanted to ask you is it's called love extremism and we tend to politicize everything right now in this nation. Mm -hmm. And somehow the, I guess radical right has turned the idea of like love extremism almost like quite literally into like a like a radical i don't know perspective how has your uh perspective on the the concept of love extremism changed in these last couple weeks well it hasn't really but i think it's kind of clarified that actions are the most articulate method of action of representing a ethos and a mentality and so you can use language to politicize something, but if our actions are rooted in love and our behaviors reflect that, then it's really difficult to dispute. And so when I think about those um, showing up and giving flowers to police officers or dancing in the streets or using art and expression as part of this movement right now, I see that as love literally pouring out and there is a huge amount of love in this movement. And I don't think that's the only thing. There's also a, a huge amount of anger and uh, rage. And in some ways, actually, I would say that anger and that rage is from love. So there's a lot, there's a lot of complexity here, but I do think it's really interesting, you know, when extremism is starting to be used in the context of people fighting for rights and fighting for dignity and fighting to be treated as human, um, and for mm -hmm. justice and, and equity. And I, I think that ultimately this is a humanist movement. The idea of being a love extremist is about being a humanist and being for the, 
um, the humanity in all people, regardless of where they come from and what they believe, and even even those on the right, even those who are in police uniforms. And you know, I'm, ta- I'm looking at even interviewing a, uh, someone at the sheriff's department and trying to really bring in perspectives that may be different, but recognizing the humanity in all, because ultimately that's what breaks us down and allows us to honor each other and love each other. Um, so, yeah, I, we'll get into this, but I, um, I spent a weekend locked in a cabin basically with pretty fucking outright racist dude. And, um, yeah, get into it. Tell us about it. What what went down? (laughs) Well, the question I wanted to ask you was, and I will expand, but he would, he, I mean, he definitely saw anyone protesting as an extremist. Mm -hmm. And if you were to say love extremist, immediately what would come to his mind is rioters looting and burning down buildings in the name of black lives. Mm. And the very first words I heard come out of his mouth were black lives bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, God, I'm trapped in this house for four days. Um, so uh, but it's complex because a lot like there could be and I, I believe there have been plenty of people who are going out, you know, putting flowers in uh, police officers hands uh, by day and then looting by night because that uh, those things can cross over mm-hmm. and they can accomplish some of the same goals. Um, do you think that? Uh, those can both be acts of love extremism. Absolutely, yeah. And if you if you follow capitalism to its origins, right, it's rooted in slavery and exploitation and extraction. Mm-hmm. And so, when we start to rise up against capitalism, ultimately, what we're doing is um, exposing its failures. And yeah, that's a loving act, right? There's creative destruction, right? You know, there's a lot of ways that we can we can exercise that. And so I think every case is different, but sure. I mean, this, this man you encountered in Arizona, you want to get to the root of where they're coming from and why they have these beliefs and why they speak the way they do. And as you ask more questions, usually it illuminates not just for you, but also for them, what is really at the core of their denial or their hatred or their avoidance of compassion and of love you know and what has been the limits to them being capable of actually accessing love in their heart um and whether they're willing to go there or not you know depends on where they're at but um i do believe it's possible to get folks just about everyone into a place um, where they can acknowledge a lack of love in their life or places where they wish they had more and find common ground there um, because i think we're all striving for that um, yeah, man. Well, you're a lot better at this than me. You have a lot more patience than I do. Because the minute I heard those words come out of his mouth, I was like, I might have to leave and drive all the way back to LA right now because I don't think I can do these four days. And uh, my lady, who's half Arab, half Filipino woman from the South, uh, who grew up with an Arab father who ran a company over there during 9-11 and experienced a lot of racism in her life was like, we're not, you don't just get to leave just because there's racist people around you. Like Mm -hmm. we stay here and we talk to him and we try to find some common ground by the end of this weekend. Mm -hmm. And, um, I didn't leave. And by the end of the weekend, we did have some, um, some perspective on it. And also it's just hilarious that our podcast, 
we just dive straight into it when we started our podcast and we're doing it once again right. for this intro. Well, um, but, I, but uh, I mean, it's in relation to our conversation we had and, and we'll have coming up about the Tower Theater, right? And, and how there was that location manager that, um, you know, was perpetuating racism in his behavior. Um, yeah, and it's funny because I listened back to it and I mentioned feeling guilt that I didn't stand up more mm -hmm. to that guy mm -hmm. and you know to others when that happens and and you were clarifying there's plenty there's racism all throughout the art world that just like lives in a different context or like expresses itself in a different way mm -hmm. um and this this these guys i was ha I were hanging out with in uh arizona uh it was my lady's friend's birthday and they had like a quarantine house out there so we we all went out um they i mean they're absolutely no part of the art world and so i think they come from uh, place and they live somewhere where racism was just like, like, again, it was exactly what I say on the podcast. It's like, I walk in in disguise. Well, They're yeah. like, Hey, we're working on the boat in the garage. You want to come through and kick it with the boys? Literally. That's what they said. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I come through, grab a beer. And then the first thing out of his mouth is we can't go to this part of the canal because of all that black lives bullshit shutting down the, right. the canals. And I'm like, Oh fuck. <laughs> Here <laughs> well, we go. You know, and I think what it what it speaks to, and I think this is like a, a message that's come loud and clear in my life, is that when you're confronted with a challenge and you don't necessarily rise to address it and 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 kind of confront it in one moment, it's going to come back. It's going to come back yeah. in another way, another form, another time, and you'll be tested again until you, I don't want to say pass the test, but until you can kind of get beyond the fear or confront it in a way that feels right. And then every time it comes up again, you're you're more prepared, you know? Um, but I yeah, want to keep, I wanna keep I this conversation I moving um, just because we, we don't have a ton of time. Um, but what were yeah, you going to say? Sure. Uh, I was just going to say, ironically, uh, the way that story ended is uh, he was very drunk and showing off his tattoos. And he had fuck cops tatted on his knees right. that he had uh, tatted on himself when he was like 15, the first time he got arrested. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, dude, you have a lot of com in common with those people up on that bridge. You should put on some Daisy Dukes and walk up there and make some best friends. Yeah. And that's what started the conversation. And uh, ironically, that's where we, that's where we uh, kind of like met in the middle on, uh, and I told him I was going to be marching in two days. Nice. And, um, and then we opened up a dialogue from there. Yeah. I think it's inc really interesting to find those points where you're like, Oh, here's a point of connection. Now we can start to really go somewhere. And that's, that's a great moral to the story. I'm glad that you shared that. Um, couple things of clarification. We just want to make sure we, we, we clarify, um, five minute mark in our conversation, uh, as the podcast starts, we were talking about kind of COVID-19 protests, right? Um, and we yeah. just want to make sure that we clarify the protests and the uprisings, um, that we're kind of looking to, uh, putting our voices behind are those in support of black lives and, and changing, um, the systemic and, interpersonal racism we experience uh throughout the world and especially the the united states but um by no means really behind the protests that are trying to open the country um prematurely uh, around COVID 19 right so just wanted to yeah. clarify that um also wanted to kind of get into the conversation around guiding lights um we were talking kind of about floating and looking for anchors in the time of the pandemic and really kind of waiting to see what was coming up can you speak a little bit to kind of some things that have been inspiring you as guiding lights over the last couple of weeks yeah well that that conversation in particular it was right when covid hit like working in the entertainment industry 
all perspective, like everything I'd built for my whole life was like on pause for a year or two, probably gone most of it. And so I was trying to figure out um, guiding lights to be productive, like quite literally, like very specific things. Like one guiding light would be, um, will this thing uh, still be valuable to people outside of quarantine? And like, like practical things like that. And, uh, but some of them expand and become a bit more esoteric. Um, and I've actually expanded this philosophy now, not just in relation to lockdown, but in relation to just how to navigate the world as a whole, when there's so many questions on how to move forward. Uh, and it's that philosophy has been super helpful, um, since these protests have began and, um, begun. And, uh, I've been, you know, I've marched a few times, um, but it's just like, I feel like there's a lot of folks like you and I, white men who are trying to figure out, should I talk? Should I not talk? Should I be doing something? Should I not be doing anything? Should I just be like watching and reading stuff? Should I be out there performing uh, huge actions? Am I scared to be out there marching in the middle of uh, um, COVID-19 plague? Uh, and this philosophy has helped <clears throat> quite a bit because it allows me to take the voices of leaders of all different kinds, plenty of black leaders and consolidate them for myself into tidbits that are useful where I can take one perspective and another perspective, combine them and then just make a guiding light mm. because it just, it just becomes so overwhelming. And that has been something that's been really difficult for me is like, where do I look? Mm -hmm. And there's so many people who are feeling so much anxiety on where do I look? And this has helped because I can look everywhere. And then when I hear something that sticks, I can place it in that same context of like, oh, this fits into my, this guiding star. So when that star is shining in my sky, I have this to call on and this to call on and this to call on and this to call on. And it's been really helpful and has expanded quite a bit in my, in my personal uh, philosophy of productivity right now. Yeah. And I think also it's so important to recognize as white men, um, we do have a history of anti-racist work and calling out um, oppressive behaviors. Um, and you specifically do in the work that you've done around, um, the gallery. Right. And so, you know, thinking about the, we talk about your work with shoot a cop. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and I'd love to jump into that because I think, you know, you have a history of doing this work. So it's not like you're just showing up for the first time thinking about these issues. Um, and similarly, so on this show and, and, and beyond, you know, the, this has been a conversation, around compassion and love and, and recognizing the humanity in all people for a long time. And so it's amazing that it's showing up now, but we also need to honor the fact that we've been part of the conversation and shouldn't feel silenced in this time either. Yeah, definitely. And when we did that shoot a cop show, we mentioned the name, uh, I think we said Eric Dorner, but the name is actually Chris Dorner and his manifesto has been making the rounds again lately. It was the, uh, yeah, Dave Chappelle um, talked about it. Yep. I think he even qualifies as a serial killer in, uh, in, uh, the definition in the United States. Um, but he, his manifesto has been <clears throat> out and he was assassinating, uh, police officers and their children. And, um, we did a show that we launched 15 days before that called shoot a cop. And, uh, it was, it was 30 days of having, um, uh, photographers document, uh, surprise topic and in a in a area of a of the city that was confined to a, a map that we built and what we did for that map was we outlined every i would go to the library actually and find find them but um their records of the outline of 
uh, where riots took place, like yeah. actual riots, not not just protests, but actual riots. And we outlined all of them on a map, and we made that the confining space of where the photographers had to shoot. And then they get a surprise topic, which was follow LEPD for 30 days, um, because they have this just like bigger than life persona, collective persona um, that's on TV and this and that, like no police force in history has ever been talked about as much as LEPD. And so um, from movies, TV, whatever, police brutality, news videos, the Rodney King stuff, like everything. And um, the minute that we launched it, half of our photographers dropped out. We added 15 more from the wait list. We had 32 days and 32 photographers. Added 15 more from the wait list. Half of them dropped out. We ended up throwing the show with like 18 photographers or something. And we asked them like, follow LAPD. Try to find them doing something wrong. A couple people did. A couple people didn't. On A couple people went on ride-alongs and just made friends with cops. Hmm. Uh, and on day 15, the uh, uh, Chris Warner started killing police officers. And we got mad protests. Yeah. So the place where they burned him alive in a cabin was um, outside of our map. And we strongly considered expanding the map just for that one instance. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't for the integrity of the show. We couldn't change it halfway through. Mm -hmm. So we left it as is. But we did get some good photos of the uh, um, uh, press conference that they did at um, the police HQ downtown right. here, which I've been marching at quite often. So I would definitely change my answer of, favorite show we've done <laughs> in this context hindsight's 2020 i would say that one because it, it it killed a lot of relationships in my life but it was one of the most honest things that i think i've ever produced i think that's such an important part of being anti-racist in these times also is recognizing relationships aren't necessarily going to stick around um the more we speak out and speak up but that's part of the work and um, recognizing, you know, who's with us and who's ready for this and who's not, um, you know, that uh, my, my intention is that everyone and hope is that everyone will be at some point, but, um, yeah, you lose friends when you start to say things like defund the police. Um, but also yeah. you gain, you gain a lot and, and, and there's a lot of real power in that. Speaking of, uh, kind of, losing and, and gaining friends um we had a conversation about gun ownership towards the end and i want to apologize the application we were using kind of got a little tripped up and so there's some talking over each other based on the quality of the recording and our, our wi-fi connection at the time um unfortunately that wasn't editable but um let's just clarify a little bit where you're at in terms of being a gun owner in this time and you know being in the heart of downtown la around skid row and and what that means for you and and these recent weeks yeah i mean that's that part has been a trip like it's it's hard to say it any other way than it's just been a fucking trip because i've been so 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 grateful that i do have a gun i've been so grateful that my neighbors do and um also very very conflicted with that fact because like you're saying in this idea of love extremism like those first days of the um when the looting began and people were burning down buildings I'm sure you recall, there was a lot of fear and anxiety of like, how many buildings are going to get burned down? Like, is this going to be like 92? Like, what's going to, I mean, I can't shoot a fire. So at that point, we would just be screwed. But I, you know, you look back on the, that footage of people defending their shops with guns. And even this, these last um, riots, if we want to call them that. Um, Uprising. Shop so. owners defending, mm -hmm. yeah, shop owners defending their 
spots with guns. Um, it, you know, it was an important element of, of protection of things that people love. And it's crazy that when you talk about, you ask me my definition of love, one of the answers I give is my building, my place that I've built. And that sounds very narcissistic and, um, I don't know, patriarchal almost, but in the context of that conversation, as people get into it, we were just talking about the idea of love being able to be applied to anything. Mm -hmm. Um, in that moment, I'm spending the day taking care of the 12 year old kid that lives next door that we talk about in this podcast. Mm -hmm. His brother who robbed me is out looting stores, stealing candy for him and giving it to him. He's telling me that everything he's seeing on the screen makes black people look bad. I'm sitting there with, in my, in my white body talking, trying to help him through this moment, having no fucking clue what I should be doing mm -hmm. while my, you know, Arab and <laughs> Filipino girlfriend who's more conservative than I am and from the South is also trying to help him through this moment. I'm texting my anarchist friends where the police are so that they're not getting arrested while they're blowing up cop cars. And I'm sitting there on a radio with my neighbors talking about how much ammo we have while the place got looted two doors down and I'm sitting there with my gun, making sure if anyone does break through my front window, they know that I'm here and planning my warning shots and this and that. So I was so, so, so grateful that I had a gun, but I'm also like, man, do we, do we really want, I really don't want to get this far. I was like, I pray to God that we do not get this far. Um, so it was, it's crazy, man. We kind of rushed through that part of the conversation, but um, and I stand by everything I say, say in that conversation, but I just like the idea of being a gun owner has so much more gravity to me, uh, in, in the last week. Yeah. It's, it's a really complex conversation and, uh, really actually would benefit from its own podcast unto itself. But, uh, I appreciate you sharing your perspectives on that and, and your experience there. And um, I know a lot of people have different views um, around gun ownership and protection and property, especially in these times. Um, and so, yeah. um, you know, I, I appreciate you being open and, and sharing kind of where you're at with that experience. And um, yeah, I, I'm still grappling with, with my perspectives as to um, guns and, and, and where, what, place they serve in our society um but um yeah thank you for being open and honest about it and yeah i, I hope you all get a chance to listen to the rest of this podcast it's an amazing far-reaching conversation around art and being white men in the scene and uh what we experience in downtown la but also um you know your your experience as a leader in the arts community um also just navigating this current time so um, definitely dig in and enjoy it. Um, Jacob Patterson, really appreciate you doing this intro and um, hope everyone uh, has a wonderful rest of your week, day, whatever you're in. And uh, we'll touch base soon. Hello, Jacob. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. Um, so we're actually recording right now, so I'm going to introduce you and we'll jump right into it. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. Awesome. Jacob Patterson is the director and co-founder of an L.A. staple in the immersive art scene, the award-winning Think Tank Gallery and Productions. With an HQ location at the intersection of the thriving Little Tokyo and Arts Districts of downtown L.A., 
Think Tank offers permitting, know-how, technical assistance to live productions and virtual environments, partnership, consultation, and sales, and a decade of experiential art installations. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Absolutely. I understand you're a podcaster as well. I am. I have a show called Artists Real Talk. Um, we were uh, we picked the name because it the acronym is ART, and it would show up real high with a dot on any um, alphabetical list. Ooh. But uh, we have it. We did uh, our first and second seasons. We had a couple things recorded for our third season. We were getting ready to launch it, and then quarantine hit, and everything just felt so out of touch mm. that I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do next, especially because we're going to hit our 10-year anniversary of Think Tank wow. during quarantine. So I feel like it should be relevant to that in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Are you finding that work goes on? Like, Where are you focusing your attention right now? I have no clue, man. <laughs> I, uh, w I mean... Who knows what's going to happen? I uh, we were I was talking to you before, yeah. And um, I was using this analogy of well, you use the analogy of just kind of being out to sea, mm -hmm. and I feel like that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. I think a lot of the stuff that we were doing before, it, currently it's illegal. Like you can't you can't even host an event with three thousand people packed in a warehouse space right now. And who knows when we'll be able to do things like that again or if it's responsible to ever do things like that again. So I don't know. We're luckily we work in um the immersive arts space, so we can come up with a bunch of random crazy stuff and that's kind of what I'm focusing on. Um I've got a little bit of runway with the, you know, some stimulus relief stuff, some side projects that I'm working on. And um not paying rent on our warehouse at the moment, whether we end up keeping it or losing it. So yeah, I'm just kind of like floating across the great sea, sailing west and seeing if I land in, uh, you know, the lands of opportunity. Sure. I feel you. It sounds like you've been putting out some darts though. It sounds like you're, you're sending out decks and at least like working on a couple different things. Are you finding any hope or, or like kind of direction for immersive art moving forward? I think that immersive artists are creating maybe the most like innovative or at least and creative artworks maybe that have ever existed. I think people have been creating immersive arts since like since the dawn of time, but now that it's kind of like defined as the immersive arts industry, we just all the artists that work in this field just try to make everything they do is something that's never been done before. And now everyone has to create work in a way that's never been done before. So we're kind of like right at home and we're as scared as everybody else is on, you know, you know, and for the, the state of the economy and the future of making money on our, our, our artwork, but we're kind of used to it. I haven't known what, what day is today? It's a Thursday. I haven't known yeah, what Thursday. a Thursday afternoon, three months from today looks like for the last 10 years. So no one knows what a Thursday afternoon three months from today looks like right now. So welcome to the club, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. What excites you about this time? Like, is there anything here that's kind of exhilarating? Um, just the, I don't know, the chaos of, of it all. There was, yeah. I was talking to a dude yesterday and he quoted game of Thrones. He said, chaos is a ladder. And um, I've always kind of, 
wielded struggle as a sword. Uh, another quote from another good friend of mine, Nova Han. You would love her. Um, we should try to get her on your show. But, um, by the way, a lot of people that have been on your show are good friends of mine. I just listened to your interview <laughs> with Kieran Gandhi, and I had, uh, yeah. yeah, she's uh, she was like pivotal in the um, formation of Think Tank. And I'm going through, I'm seeing Aaron on your show and Phil America and all these people, Trey. Yeah. Um, yep. I just quote Bam. so many people from Sacramento, Sacktown, stand up. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Sacramento's like, I'm ashamed right now, too, with all these damn protests that are happening on the doorstep of the Capitol. But, yeah. um, well, I'm a, actually the next person I'm interviewing is my council rep who's in Sacramento right now. <laughs> Where are you from? I don't know if I've ever asked that. Uh, I'm originally from the Boston area. I'm from Brookline, Massachusetts, right outside Boston. Mm, cool. I have a friend who is in Boston right now who is doing some really innovative stuff in immersive artists. His name's um, Jesse Damiani. He writes for emerging for emerging tech um, for like Forbes and all these all these huge media outlets. Um, but yeah, just kind of looking cool. toward people like that, people who are have always been creating some of the most interesting and innovative stuff. And they're the people I call when I'm like, Hey, I have this really wild idea and I, and it needs whatever, like an AI artist to create it. Um, where should I be looking? Those people now are like, Hey, the world doesn't know what to do. Where should I be looking? Cause you probably have a good sense of direction in, uh, in the, the post-apocalyptic landscape. Right. Right. I think there's also just like the interesting intersection between futurism and art, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, I've always been fascinated by the work of Sid Mead, who um, kind of like created the the landscape of Blade Runner and was the artist behind a lot of those kind of futuristic sci-fi films of the 70s and 80s. Yeah, man. And um, I, th I think that that idea of like the artist kind of being both the 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 people that go back in history and back in time to find reference but also can kind of almost like conjure the future through their work or through their thought it's, it's very much the futurist mentality i think when you when you get into the arts yeah absolutely i was i just finished westworld season three and okay. um i won't say anything about it because that could lose you a lot of followers <laughs> um sure. depending on whether i loved it or hated it but um i watched the 1970s film and it's so crazy to see the way people thought of the future pre and post internet. There's like thousands of years that people had been thinking of what the future would be. And it all looked the same for like 2000 years. <laughs> and then the internet right. came around and then instantly our vision of the future changed for everybody because it was like this, a, a step in human evolution that opened this world of possibility in everyone's minds. And it's so crazy. You can look at something from 1970 and you can look at something from like 1470 and their vision of the future was pretty much just like flying cars. <laughs> there was some other stuff too, but like so much of it revolved around flying cars. And yeah. now our vision of the future is such so much more liberated. Well, it's interesting, like as someone who has had such a recognized gallery and, and career in many parts, thanks to social media and the Internet, um, now that the physical side of your work has kind of shut down for the time being um, and we've kind of been forced to focus ex almost exclusively on the Internet for community and connection and information, do you feel like... Um, the, the, the view of the future is getting like narrower if we're to continue along this path? Or do you think it's still getting wider? 
Um, who knows, man? Who knows? What I one thing I have seen is a lot of people because I I work primarily. I mean, I'm I'm more of like a producer than anything. I'm I I create art, but in in order to apply for all these grants, I've had to call myself an artist. But I haven't um, called myself an artist formally for quite a while. Um, mm-hmm. I'm more of like a like a producer collaborator with artists, um, mm-hmm. and. I and, and Phil was instrumental in me um, starting to think that way. So everyone should listen to all of the podcast interviews and all of his shows that that, that guy does because he he's helped me. Um, he's opened my, up and opened up my mind quite a bit. That said, mm-hmm. I have seen so many um, people who identify much in the same way that I do struggling right now to try to take um, their their skill sets, their ability to produce a badass live event and entertainment and make things fun for a big audience and allow people to like stumble into these just like immersive like lose themselves in these worlds that these people create and trying to do that virtually people are are struggling so hard and it's almost like they're trying to elbow room at the table with like game designers and people who have been working in in these um, media for decades mm-hmm. instead of learning what it is about these virtual platforms that they can to which they can apply their skill sets. And so right. I kind of sat back for the first um, wave of my, you know, analog experience producer friends creating virtual experiences and watched some of the pitfalls. And ironically, the pitfalls are often the same as, as they are in live experiences, which is like awkwardness and like audiences not understanding what they should be doing, which isn't a sign of a stupid audience. It's a sign of a bad designer. And um, mm-hmm. there it's funny because these people know how to do all these things and often they know how to do them really well and better than anyone else in the world. Um, but they are like forgetting that as they hop into this virtual environment. So I've just been kind of like watching and, I'm sure I'll make all the exact same mistakes they do when I when I share the the first of the things that we're working on for the first time, um, mm-hmm. but trying not to, trying to learn the lessons um, from other people before I make the same mistakes myself. Yeah, one thing that really excited me when the pandemic hit was just like the fact that we were all kind of locked down and the traditional avenues of power that we might look to for information or culture um, are almost on the same, like, like there felt like there was a room for arbitrage, like with more attention on the screen or people looking for outlets for creative consumption that wasn't going to be in real time and space. um, How could you start to build new models or new ways of doing it in an audio space, like a podcast or, you know, creating living room environments. I've been doing these kind of salons and I'm just really got excited about this idea of like, okay, like how can we start to mix and match these platforms that have always existed, but now we're kind of forced to be putting all our attention on them. Um, Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I I don't know how that's going to shake out. I also think there's plenty of tedium and, and like over screen time over audio, you know, and like the consumption levels are so high that, um, we need to balance it with with creation and and getting out and not being inundated with tech. Yeah, so. can I ask you if you're if you have any projects that you haven't shared yet that you've been working on and just and kind of trying to work out in this new moment of human history? Yeah, I'm most interested in um, white supremacy mm-hmm. as something to combat 
and how mm-hmm. my identity as a, a white cis man um, lends me to have a position of power that um, perpetuates white supremacy if I am not in constant conversation and dialogue with it and with my peers about it. Mm. Um, So I have quietly been putting together some reading groups and just collecting folks who are interested in this, but also folks who just are in positions of leadership as white men to start to educate ourselves and just read and and start to understand more um, so that we can become effective allies and ultimately um, have a seat at the table as uh, the patriarchy and the white supremacist culture dissolves over the next uh, few years. You, Hopefully faster. How long faster have you been working on this? Uh, it's been something that's been over the course of the last year, year and a half, um, but um, with more intention, especially gathering men and like reaching out to them and, and suggesting readings and having conversations. That's been probably the last six months mm. I'd say, man, I, um, let's fucking dive into it. Um, here (laughs) or not. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's a love podcast. I don't know what version of love we're looking at here, but I, um, love is truth, my friend, but (laughs) I'm going to ask you that actually, go ahead. My, um, truth is full of a lot of curse words. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I've been I've been tossing around an idea for quite a while, and that was actually one of the reasons why uh, Think Tank entered the really interesting phase in which it did. Because Think Tank kind of happened to itself; it just kind of like emerged in the in the like collective. I, want, I would want to use the word consciousness, but it was it was sub so subconscious. It was like this collective like efforts of all the people who were involved in it, and it's changed. It's had so many different iterations. Um, and the next iteration, who know, I don't even know what it's going to be. Like, like I told you, I'm just like sailing the great seas. And at some point, I'll, I'll land upon the shore. And um, who knows what that'll be. We'll say something when we have something to say. But I've been working um, behind the scenes on this project for a while on a lot of thought processes that um, it's just been mainly just been that just that just thinking exercises on um, the fact that I find myself because I'm a white dude, probably, I mean, I don't know my um, heritage on three out of four sides. um, But I very much look like a white dude. So I assume that I am one. And I uh, find myself in situations where other people make that same assumption and see me as like, some like insider in their racist group. Like I remember I was working on this show for not on Broadway when we were creative directors on that festival. And um, I was going to work with the, and, and fuck this guy. I'll, I'll just like t- tell the story straight up. I'm not going to say his name, but he was um, one of the location managers for the tower theater. And I walk in with my partner at the time who is a Jewish dude. And he would, he would like talk to us like in this very professional manner to the two of us and then my partner would leave and then he would just like say some super racist shit to me right after that like he was talking about how i think lil b had just had a concert at one of the other theaters like the regent or something with uh, yeah with ham on everything and i I was there and uh, the guys who throw ham on everything are some of my friends but this guy just assumed like i would be cool with him saying racist shit about like all the black people who threw that show and how like horrible they are and how you know we got to like watch out for them and like all this kind of shit and i was like there's something hmm. about this where like he didn't ask me any questions at all 
about whether I was right. racist or not or whatever. And I felt so much guilt since then because I didn't stand up to him as much as I should. Like I didn't have the courage, I guess, to speak up. And that's probably been um, uh, like hammered into me over many a Thanksgiving table where my <laughs> family of 49ers fans um, have told me all of their opinions on Colin, Colin Kaepernick and the fact that he chose to have an Afro when he did and all this kind of stuff for a long time. And um, just feeling like, all right, I love my family. I can either like never talk to them again or just kind of like shrug this one off and not argue with them. And every once in a while I argue with them about it, but it's, it's weird. I feel sometimes like I'm just like in disguise that, <laughs> that I've like infiltrated this racist uh, like secret society of white dudes that feel like I'm in there with them and they never ask, they never ask, like when they say something that's like crazy racist or just like a tiny bit racist, they never ask me up front how I, how I feel about it. They just say it like it's okay to say. Mm -hmm. And um, they're, they obviously feel empowered to do so. And looking at the leadership we select, who knows when that'll end, but um, it's pretty wild. So I've been working on this, uh, this side project that as I've been talking to people has grown. I'd love to talk to you about it off the record because I don't want to um, you know, declaring your plans is, is a good way to set a punchline for the gods. But I, um, I, uh, yeah, I've been working on this, on this thing on the side and it's kind of like evolved from that, like disguise that I feel like I've been in, um, when I walk just to the outside edges of the art world, because inside the art world, everyone's aware, but just on the outside of the art world, there's just so much damn racism everywhere, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually everywhere. Um, it's in the art world as well. Um, but the ways that it is expressed is different, right? Yeah. So there's sometimes the most um, problematic racism is the racism that's in self-denial, yeah. right? We live in a culture of racism. And so um, our perpetuation of it is inevitable. Um, and ultimately, like, it's we're going to slip up, you know, it, everyone is. And, and regardless of our background, even even if we're a person of color, there's, you know, racism is baked into our identities as humans in this mm. culture. Um, so it's really about unlearning and starting to recognize where we have privilege and where we have power and how we can start to work with that to shift um, and 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 to and to take a leadership role and stand up to people and 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 say, you know, like I don't agree with that and that's not my view or I, you know, I don't perceive people like that or. Um, you know, the way that you're speaking or the way, you know, that's perpetuating uh, racism in a way that I don't feel comfortable, you know? And um, yeah, I think, it, I think it's time for us to step into our privilege in that we are trusted. Um, and I say we, I mean, I am a Jewish man as well. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't think a lot of um, white supremacists talk to me about their racist beliefs. Um, and yet I still see it. I catch it. And you know, there's same, same with sexism, same with ableism, same with Islamophobia, right? So like, it's not that there's, you know, hetero, heterosexism, cissexism, all these things are systems of oppression that we need to untangle and recognize that we're in power positions to do so. Um, and we're taken, we're seen as peers or we're seen as, you know, people in positions of control. And, and in some cases we are, mm -hmm. and, and we can, we can act on that. And um, yeah, I'd love to continue that conversation with you offline or in any case, like that's really important to me right now is like recognizing how I can be a resource to fellow white men who are often not compelled by the words of their 
colored people of color uh, as who are their mm. peers for whatever reason you know you can see thousands of posts on instagram and not you know reach out to the da in georgia about um acquitting these three men who have committed homicide against ahmed mm. uh you know in, in back in february ahmed arbery and and you know we like we all have this position to do so. And if I, if my voice is the one that's going to get someone to take that action and say, Hey, this will take two seconds, put your name on this, on this petition and let's, let's get change happening in Georgia that show that we care about this case. You know, that's, that's a major win, but also like, why does it take me to do that? Yeah. You know, why does why my white body or you know my influence shift? Mm. So anyway, that's a little bit of a tirade, but um, yeah, it's a really important thing and something that I've been thinking a lot about and also want to approach um, as a student because I am, I'm never going to be an expert in this and I don't ever want to claim like I am and and I'm always learning. And I think it's problematic for any white person to say like, I've got this, you know, I know what to do, come to me for all the answers because like, that's not true, you know, And, and we're all constantly learning and yeah um i mean if anything we're the furthest from knowing the answers but we uh yeah yeah i would love to to share some of this stuff with you because it's um it most of the projects that i work on we attach it to a, a corporate corporate partner and that's usually um associated with my just like perception of um how art can um function in its most accessible way mm-hmm. um in general mm-hmm. which we can get into if you want but um this project is going to be so like there's a very, very, very strong chance that I'll end up in prison. And um, it, 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 it's going to require some support. And so talking to um, people like you and a lot of the others that I've heard on your show um, offline, I would love some guidance on, on kind of where to go with it because it's going to be a very like polarizing um, experience, inflammatory, perhaps. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Let's inflame. <laughs> yeah. um, so this is Love Extremist Radio. And actually, to be quite honest, the genesis of the idea of love extremism came from meeting a former neo-Nazi. Well, so um, it's all tied in um, to really combating extremist hate. Um, but I'd be very curious to hear from you what love means in Jacob Patterson's definition. What is love? Um, I've been thinking about this. And when I boil it down, it just... I think it comes down to just like unconditional care, like care for people regardless, care for someone or something regardless of whatever. Would you say that's kind of like recognizing the humanity and all people? Yes, but I have had love that is pure love um, for things or animals as well so it doesn't even necessarily have um, humanity and I might be personifying it but I remember leaving our building um, when we lost old tank which a place we were at for nine years because a bunch of like gangsters pulled guns on me Um, and a bunch of other shit that happened with like landlord being in on it and yada yada and um, I remember leaving that place and just like attempting to like hug the wall just like leaning against it just i was alone for once and i was just like pressing myself to the wall that i had put so much love and care into that wall for so many different shows and experiences and i had built the wall and like all this stuff with my friends and how many people had contributed to this thing with me and just like how much i just fucking loved it 
and it hurt so bad to let it go. It was one of the worst pains I've ever felt. And now we're in our new place. And depending on how this quarantine goes, it might, that might happen again. So I've had to redefine my relationship with my, with this project. That's was one project in my twenties and will prove to be a completely different project in my thirties. Now there's some crossover in there of a couple of years, but that's kind of the way that I have to look at it. And that felt very much to me like love. Mm. That's beautiful. Uh, and I appreciate you taking it out of the realm of just the human um, because yeah, I see love being also worldly, right? Like there is this frame of love of self, love interrelationally, but also love of the world and love of our community mm. or love of a building or love of our environment, right? Taking, taking care yeah, of Yeah, that was very stuff. like myopic yeah. version, like super macro, I mean, micro scale. But um, in, a more, in a more general way, like so much of my understanding of love comes from like the stark differences between um, how my, like my mother treated me and my father, who I, I don't fuck with him or his side of the family anymore and haven't talked to him for a really long time but just like the differences in how they treated me and also all of the messages in michael jackson's music (laughs) there was so much i mean say what you will about the dude and the idea of love and how problematic that can be but there was so many messages of just absolutely pure love in that dude's music and so often, like I've been in downtown LA for 10 years and I've been in Skid Row for almost two. And so often I'll be out with people and they'll be like, why do you give that dude money? Like, you're just going to spend it on drugs. And it's like, you're not, it's not your, or like shaking people's hands, which I don't do in, right now. But I, w- I used to always make a point of like looking someone in the eye, shaking their hand. And, they, and so often they would like pull their hand back. Like, you shouldn't touch me. Mm. No one wants to touch me. And I'd be like, no, dude, like, mm. shake my hand. Like, what's your name? What's your first name? And when I and I would make an effort to, I, as I was walking away, I would repeat their first name over and over and over again. So if I saw them, I could address them by name before they could say anything to me. Part of that was to protect me, that they knew I'm not a mark. Um, also, that I've heard their story that they lie about <laughs> like four times. Be like, dude, you don't have to make up some sympathy mm. story story to ask me for money. Just ask me, and to, to, for them to know that I'm a part of the neighborhood. But. Part of it also was just like you're saying, like you're saying, to, to humanize things. And when people would ask me, "Why are you giving that dude money? He's going to spend it on drugs." Like it's not your choice what he spends it on. And regardless of the afflictions that person's experiencing, even if they're self-imposed, it doesn't mean that you can choose that this person deserves love more than this one does. And I'm not giving, I'm not giving an outpouring of love. I'm not inviting that person into my home, but for that one little moment where a, one little spark of love can be shared or care. I guess I never really thought of it as like mm. spreading love, but um, in a way that's what it is. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, love downtown that's LA. beautiful. I was going to ask you if you had like, I a, was just saying, and sorry, I love downtown LA with all my heart. <laughs> nice. I, ha- I have a deep, a deep love for downtown LA as well. I've, I was started riding my bike down to downtown when I moved to LA in 2008 and opened a shop there 2009 and have had relative like spaces all over arts district and downtown for a long time. But um, yeah, it's such a special uh, part of the city and historically just has all of this amazing still has all of this amazing like little pockets to it, you know, like the places where you can go and get, all the wholesale for fabric and then all the wholesale for fruit and veggies and like the pinata district and 
um, just all these cool little, the fish district. It's just really interesting, like having a downtown like that. Usually those types of warehouse kind of districts of wholesale are not in the downtown mm. of a city. And so it's pretty interesting that they exist so close to like the financial yeah. district and everything yeah. else. So that's cool. So are, are there any other practices that you think are loving in your life? Cause I was going to ask you if you had this kind of daily practice and I love that one. That one's really epic, but others that well, you care the most to share? present um, thought that uh, is constant in my mind is my love for the Dallas Cowboys. And um, I know that one's unconditional because <laughs> they certainly don't love me back or they haven't for the last 25 years. But um, I, uh, I, I, through quarantine, actually, I've been um, a new part of my routine and I have a, you know, a general routine on my daily practice, but um, a new part of my routine that's been introduced that I hope I'll, I'll keep a good portion of it is calling people um, of all kinds, people I've worked with who haven't talked to in six or seven years. And I think a lot of us are doing this, but especially with my, um, male friends, I've been making a really strong effort to say, I love you to them when I get off the phone with them. And that's been, um, you know, there's been a lot of that, a lot of stuff like that on, um, toxic masculinity and and whatnot that's emerged in in the last few years on, on the internet. But in practice, like saying, I love you to a dude that is really uncomfortable <laughs> because of that. Um, mm-hmm. I do it. Mm-hmm. I, I keep doing it. And some, to some people it turns into a joke and uh, to others, it just becomes a part of our, our uh, relationship from that point forward. And, um, and that's been, that's been pretty beautiful. And then also just um, practicing what you preach. Every single person I talk to, I ask them if there's anything I can do for them. And when they're like, no, nah, I'm good. I give them an example uh, of anything like, um, you know, like I was calling people, I, uh, like corporate partner representatives that I had worked with over the years and saying like, hey, I know you're back in Korea right now or, or wherever your company's from, um, but I know you have a place in downtown LA and Daddy Garcetti is talking about um, barricading this place up. If you need me to go there and like board the windows or wash the windows or uh, move anything for you in downtown LA, just let me know. Like I'll, anything you need, just let me know. And that mm. act of servitude almost has greatly increased the strength of so many relationships across the board. Uh, and um, that's become a really mm. important part of my, of my routine lately. And now I'm getting to people who I should have called three months ago, but I, I realized that each one of these phone calls ends up being an hour long. So I limit myself to like two to four a day. And now I notice when I pick up the phone and talk <laughs> yeah. to somebody, I'm like, Hey, and the first thing out of my mouth is I'm sorry. I haven't called you yet. <laughs> I'm like, so many people that I have to call, <laughs> but I had to limit myself because it's all I would be doing calling every contact for the last 10 years. Right. So obviously some people get more calls than others. Like my mom didn't get moved to the back of the line. She still gets a call every couple of days. And I talk to my girlfriend every day or see her every day. But, um, but that's been, it's been crazy to watch my relationships evolve through this moment. That's so incredible that you're doing that. Have you like, what have you learned from that practice? Um, or what have you gained or what do you, yeah. Like, what do you, what do you know? Just how important relationships are in our field. Like I've gotten so many job, like side jobs out of it. And purely because I had no intention of getting those person to get those persons to give me jobs. So I'm working on three projects right now, you know, may or may not be getting paid in various capacities for them. 
And it's work that emerged that mm-hmm. one month ago didn't exist even as an idea for that person to even be working on. And then when they came up with it, they called me to work on the project with them. And so much of it was just from being a helpful dude. And um, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's pretty nuts. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that's really good advice for others is to recognize who are the what are the relationships you have in your field and um, maybe beyond your field, right? Who are the people that maybe you're a little hesitant to reach out to, but you you know have good rapport with you just haven't spoken yeah. to in a long time and circle yeah, up and with in them, a less check in on selfish them. way yeah. um, of just like I'm getting jobs. Um, I have I've also just been in this analogy that I've given you of selling the great sea and just heading west for the land of opportunity. I. I was talking to someone last night, a friend of mine who works for Oculus, and she asked me to make her a pitch as well. And we went, we went to the like Oculus Venues Wiz Khalifa concert yesterday, which was a VR live concert and from from Wiz Khalifa's backyard. It was such a trip. But um, and like talking to random people from Whoa. all over the world, these crazy accents, and they're twelve years old from like Norway or something. It was that was so bizarre. But um, I was talking to her and I was telling her just kind of like in a, she was like giving me some advice on like, I've been having trouble sleeping. Although last night I slept really well for the first time in a, in a while. And that's, you know, it's probably an internalized anxiety because I've been absolutely insanely productive and haven't been feeling a sense of anxiety because I have had a somewhat of a, a general sense of direction, which I'll get to in a second. And um, she was like, you know, that's probably a sign of like a lack of self, like attention to yourself and your, your, your own needs, your like, um, like a, a lack of self-love essentially. And she was like, uh, that anxiety can be felt often when you are running from something and, um, instead of like running towards something, um, in a direction. And it got me thinking in this moment, every single human being on the entire earth, probably maybe for the only time in our lives is uniformly running away from something. And we've all personified it as this COVID-19 crisis. And the economic crisis might be some, something that they're more afraid of, um, but that maybe their sister has, is immunocompromised and has crazy asthma, like mine. And they might be afraid of, of losing them. Um, or they might be afraid of dying themselves or whatever. And, and some people have had this crazy, stable, cushy job with this really great check that they've become addicted to and all of all these big expenses that they've lost now. And they're not in my privileged position where I've been basically fucked for 10 years. So I'm used to it. Um, but we're all right. It, unfortunately, we all, the only thing that we have as, as a true sense of direction right now is the thing we're running from. And that's usually considered a bad thing, but right now it's like kind of all we got. And so as I've started sailing West, I've tried to create a general sense of direction, but we don't know, like the frontiersmen didn't know what was on the other side of that like great mountain range the vikings didn't know what was there when they were um sailing the great seas and we don't know now (laughs) either and um we're gonna we're going to land somewhere and some people know better than others but i've been just trying to give myself this general sense of direction and one thing that's come out of these phone calls is as i talk to people you are one of them as i've talked to people i've introduced this idea of these like guiding lights um, to myself. And it's not always a North mm. star. I talked to someone yesterday who was a, uh, futurist. Um, it's funny that you were, uh, that yeah, you brought that up cool. and he said, 
I asked, he, he like in conversation, he was like, yeah, my North Star is the Matrix. <laughs> He's like, everything I do is based on that movie, which was hilarious. Um, but uh, other people have given me some really crazy, insightful things. And a lot of them can be grouped in and I redefine this, this like guiding star. And sometimes one guiding star shines brighter than another, but it's kind of formed this whole constellation. And every once in a while, I'm, I'm aimed more in the direction of one star rather than the other. But uh, it's given me a sense of, uh, direction on just like now I still know I'm going in the right direction who knows what's over there but it gives me some sort of direction that I can unearth some truth there and even if it's just truth and productivity there's some kind of truth in that direction and I can sail toward it and that has helped a lot mm, I can totally relate to that I think these conversations for me having these kind of podcast interviews has become a bit of an anchor in that way or this kind of like sense of direction and light. And and it's also helping inform just my thinking around some of these important issues that I mentioned earlier, um, but just really getting to know not only how people are orienting their attention right now, but also how we can be better stewards. One thing I, I think about in terms of the analogy you use around kind of being the explorer or the um, kind of the Viking or, or the, you know, the people, the frontiers people, um, I, I challenge you to rethink the colonial <laughs> I was going to say approach. that when you laughed, I knew what you were laughing um, about. Yeah, because, because like we have this ingrained sense and I, the, you know, the manifest mm -hmm. destiny, right? Like, and as someone who early on came to Los Angeles because it was affordable, I could start a business, I could get rent downtown for cheap. Right. Like all of these are mindsets of an artist, a creative an entrepreneur who wants to take advantage of the incredible resources the city had and maybe still has in many cases um, to create something. And a lot of that is oriented around affordable resource, right? Land and space that that I could get. And also just the immense access to people and, and incredible people who had skills or or um, were creative and talented and, and, and were willing to collaborate. But I do think that idea of um, like, how do we approach this next time from a place of co-creation, uh, collaboration, empowerment, you know, like start to think about like language that we can use to, and you have built your career on empowerment. So I don't need to tell you this, but um, yeah, it's just something that I, I'm thinking about a lot as we frame the future. It's like, it doesn't have to be yeah. just about securing that check, right? Like that, that paycheck feels like maybe the wrong metric for how we orient our next iteration yeah, of I mean, humanity. The paycheck might be a, a universal, basic universal income and no one will have to worry about paychecks ever again. We're heading that direction. We'll probably stop well short of what um, a lot of underserved peoples may need. But um, it is kind of crazy how we've in this moment, the like these acts of like capitalist greed are so apparently gross and like evil right now, like people stockpiling toilet paper even. And then this, this like social good, which feels a lot like socialism has emerged as like, mm -hmm. like something that's righteous and just and good and something that we're all willing to do. And when we see all these people protesting, like I want to be able to go get a haircut or whatever, we're like, that's so disgusting. You don't care about people dying because you want a haircut. Look how selfish you are. And then when we see people who are standing in line peacefully outside grocery stores, while we let 
the elderly shop for the first couple hours and, you know, all these things that have become, you know, wearing masks and all these things that have become just a part of our everyday activities, those feel good. And it's, uh, it's nuts. I think that's a permanent change in our, in our mindset that, um, that we will all garner from this moment of, of kind of like just human evolution in general worldwide, which has been beautiful mm. to watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like being able to find the juice here and the goodness and the joy and the beauty and being able to kind of not extract that, but, um, you know, highlight it and put an exclamation point on it. And um, certainly the role of artists and and folks, you know, producing Mm -hmm. art is to capture that and to be able to um, ensure that those values and the images and the experiences remain long after um, this particular pandemic might. Yeah, it's so true. And it's going to, I mean, in that exact um, capacity that you're talking about, I signed a 10 year lease, a five or 10 year lease um, with this option to renew thing on this building. And I put all of my time, I worked through Christmas, New Year's, I worked, spent all of my money renovating this place. And because of this moment, I will probably lose it. I mean, there's a couple very slim possibilities that I won't. Um, and I'm just like at peace with that. I'm like, well, a lot of people's lives will be saved if me and millions of others like me lose our life's work, but it saves lives for me to sacrifice Mm. my life's work. Other, it saves other people's lives. So whatever it is I have to do, I'm going to sail West with all the other, um, conquistadors and (laughs) Spaniards and no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm going to sail West and, and see what's over there. Um, but I, uh, and the reason I was using that analogy is because someone brought it up to me last night, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, it just like the willingness of so many people to lose everything that they held dear to them. That wasn't a human life has been so inspiring right now. I've seen Mm -hmm. so many people and, and there's been a lot of anxiety surrounding it, Mm -hmm. but many have come to terms with it somewhat like I have. Maybe I haven't come to terms with it as much as I thought because I've been having trouble sleeping, but um, it's, it's been beautiful to watch. Right, right. <laughs> so is there an artwork that you've produced or a show that you've produced that you feel is most relevant to this time? Or that you're, that you're like thinking back to and being like, oh man, that was like really on point. There's been a couple. Going um, I did a show with Phil called Legal Goods. It was a... Um, it was a, a um, the third of our You Are Here series, which is like a street photography um, kind of like like site specific in a geographical way um, series. And the first one was just we moved into mm-hmm. um, Santiago. We gave a bunch of like famous photographers the opportunity to curate a bunch of other photographers, and they had to shoot one square block for one week. And it was sponsored by Leica, and it's, it's a little bit deeper than that, but that's the gist of it. Second one was called Shoot a Cop. And we had um, these photographers, many of whom quit once they heard the theme, um, had to shoot the surprise theme. And they followed LEPD for 30 days to see if there was really as much corruption as, as they thought. Halfway through that show, um, that uh, Eric Dorner, the like Navy SEAL dude who started um, murdering uh, police officers, he was like a LEPD serial killer. Um, day 15 is when that right. started and all these people were protesting us to change the name of shoot a cop. Whoa. My uncle's a cop and, um, disowned me for quite a while. I only recently made amends with him. And the third version was, um, you are here three legal goods. And we had just, um, the ghost ship fire had just happened. So we had just lost our building for the first time. Um, 
well, we thought we had lost our building. We still had our lease mm. and we were trying to get out of our lease and couldn't. So we had to adapt and figure out a way to stay um, later. But we thought we were gone out of that building. And yeah, was that the yeah, building across yeah, from Michael it was Levine? a it was a co-living space for yeah. a long time. And um, I'm so thankful right now mm -hmm. that I am not running a community like that through this pandemic. I, I think of that every single day and I'm so grateful for it. Um, but uh, I worry a lot for a lot of my friends who still are running communities like that. Um, and we all see what's happening to WeWork. Mm -hmm. So, um, but we decided we were going to, like we had basically lost our venue for breaking the law essentially, which it was a gray, very gray area of the law, but um, it was we were like an illegal gallery. And Phil really loved the idea of an illegal gallery. So mm -hmm. he asked us if we would wanna um, co-curate and, and produce a show for him. Um, where we went into, we took an illegal gallery, um, showed only um, artwork by other um, artists who had broken the law and um, moved into an, an area of LA known for breaking the law. And Phil's really good at, um, he's kind of one of these like <laughs> undercover white dudes too, where he's really good at like going into a community as a white dude and um, learning about it first before he does anything. And I would guess there's been a million times more projects he hasn't done because he felt like he didn't have anything to say, but the ones he has, um, to me, they appear pretty thoughtful most of the time. I'm sure he's received criticism from other people on other fronts, but uh, I love a lot of what he's done. I think he's very thoughtful on it. So we went into um, the MacArthur Park neighborhood, which had been um, rebranded um, in an attempt to gentrify into Westlake. Um, because MacArthur Park is known as an area for um, right. illegal activity. And we saw so much illegal activity when we were there. But we basically bartered a deal where we would... Um, uh, they really hated all the gang graffiti that was on their mural in the front of the building. So we offered to, uh, we were like, can we have this, you know, this little space with no lease for like a couple months to do this gallery and we'll paint the mural, uh, repaint the mural in the front of your building and you guys can direct us in what you want. And so we did that and we just like, we kind of like lived there for like two months and we would, uh, we all took shifts and um, kids weren't in school at the time. So we, basically became babysitters. All the parents would just let all their kids come hang out with us because we were like the fun new gallery in the area. Um, we still see some of them sometimes. And um, yeah, it was, it was beautiful. It was just like, uh, our only rule is that every guest who came had to buy something from one of the neighboring booths. And we were, we just so happened to be right next door to it, the most delicious juice bar. <laughs> so everyone always bought one of those. Nice. But, um, it was great. I absolutely love those yeah. swap meets, by the way. It's, it's, the one, it's the West a Lake block away from that one, but the one? Uh, the one on the other side of the um, train stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's called the Bonito swap meet. And right. Yeah, I used to go yeah. in there actually and get sunglasses. Oh, dude, it was, like it, feel, it, it felt so much like Santee Alley to us, like even more compact. Right. It's very Santee. Yeah. But more and more dusty too, like not as new yep. stuff, but it, all counterfeit like stuff. Old janky it was, stuff. Uh, yeah, it was, it was great, mm -hmm. and it was very much a sense of community. And um, I think Defend Boyle Heights went after us for a while because um, Phil and I were white, nice. and we kind of were like the faces of the project. Although the art director from the project was half Mexican, and there was a bunch of you know other people of color who worked on the project that we let guide it much more. Like he, like the art director guided everything that we saw he created the verbiage and 
you know, like the way everything looked. But of course, they're like, oh, here's these two white dudes who are in here. And they attacked us for a minute. And Phil was like, come over here and talk to the people in here. And I think they did. And everyone was like, no, these guys are great. We love them. <laughs> they were like trying to incite this like animosity in the community there. And um, Phil had handled it, I think, really well. And mm. uh, and wow. it was obvious that he approached this from a, a pretty wise perspective in that because otherwise we would have been attacked terribly. And we were attacked and then it just kind of like faded away pretty quickly and, and we ended up being okay. But it was, um, and then after that, we ended up moving back into our place anyway. But um, that sense of community and getting all of our patrons to come out to this place that was not some like, it was not an art gallery setting where people, a lot of people don't feel invited at all. The vast majority of the people that experienced our show mm -hmm. didn't even know they were going to an art show. And, um, and it was great. Yeah. That's a really powerful lesson as well to just build rapport in the space where you are. And I think that's one kind of lesson to speak to just in gentrification in general is like if you can create and establish meaningful relationships with your neighbors in a community then you, you belong there right like if you can come in not necessarily belong but like you can i believe like if you can treat your neighbors with respect and feel respect <laughs> in both directions um just like what you talk about in terms of how you move around skid row and and you know the areas where you are in downtown la like you're bringing love to that environment and you're bringing joy to that space and you're respecting well, I can tell you, sorry to interrupt, but you're, you're so while, speaking my language right now because when we, yeah. in the process of moving in here, we were, we're moving to Skid Row and um, we're a gallery and we're just marks. So we, in the process of moving in, were um, robbed and the story's so insane and I can tell you the whole mm -hmm. thing later. But um, it, culminated in me discovering that we were robbed a few hours after it happened. And I had been, um, you know, I, they didn't get into one room. And so I still had my gun in that room and I got a piece of advice a long time ago that was don't, um, <laughs> trust me, this is getting back to love in a second, but the piece of advice was, uh, don't, don't call to report the crime that was committed, call to report the crime you're about to commit. So I had called the cops already. And then I was like, I don't want to be stereotypical. I am going to, but we're right next door to a syringe exchange. I have to go ask. There's an SRO housing unit above, um, a bunch of units above. I have to just go ask. And I go back there. The manager's like, well, let me bring you into the maintenance stairwell. Um, no one has access to this except for me. And um, I, we, we, right when he opens the door to the maintenance stairwell, there's my bike and my accountant's bike. And I'm like, well, unfortunately, on, in, in this case, that, that one was true. So went back, called the cops again, told them, hey, I found all my stuff. 99% of the time, you don't get your stuff back. So I'm, gonna, I'm grabbing my gun right now, and I'm going to go get it. She's like, excuse me, sir. I'm like, you got five minutes. Send someone here quickly. And cops were there within two. We go back, we get all our stuff back. Just so happened to be that the only people we knew in the neighborhood was this guy. It was like a weekend or something. It was this guy named Green Eyes who just kind of like watches out for the neighborhood. And he had introduced himself to us early and we saw him every single day. And his son had just gotten out of prison and was still addicted um, to heroin. And he, and he uh, came home, his parents were asleep. And so he called 
his, he like drops some of his stuff off outside the door and then called his dealer to, um, get, uh, you know, to get some stuff and didn't have any money. So he said, I don't have money, but these marks just moved in next door and I know how to get into their back alley. And they, he was so small cause he was like, he's a junkie that he was able to fit in this really high, very small window and got inside, opened the door and cleared us out for hours and hours and hours. They took our computers, our hard drives, our backup hard drives, all of our court doc, everything. It was just like junkie mentality, junkie logic. And so um, after we found all of it, find out it's, it's green eyes, kid, um, get, get most of our stuff back. And um, now since then I've met all of his little brothers, his one little brother, London comes over every day after school. He's helped us build every single show that we've ever built. Um, I've seen him throughout the entire quarantine. I threw his mom's birthday party here for free. She just made us all dinner. And it's like, this is the dude that robbed us. (laughs) And now I'm throwing his mom's birthday party in my place for free. And it was very much like, what am I going to do? Am I going to be like, just stand outside with my shotgun and like shoot, like a shoot the sidewalk so that everyone knows I'm here? Or am I going to inject myself into the community in another way? And, um, that second one worked out. He's still not invited here. He's invite. he's, he's, um, asked me for forgiveness like three times. I've forgiven him every time, told him he's not allowed in here because I don't want him to see what we have in our place, but his whole family is every once in a while. I worry. I wonder if, if he asks what's in here, but, um, it does. I feel, I do not feel scared at all. I feel like pure companionship and love toward those people. And, um, and it's been pretty wild, but like you said, it was, it was very much just like the only way in to be a part of the community is to be a part of the community. And and that's what it took. That's so dope. And, and I think that's, that's really right. It's like building trust. It's, it's seeing each other as, I mean, going back to the humanity thing, but it's just like treating each other as approachable people. Right. And even, you know, the guy who robbed you, Mm -hmm. like you, you recognize like he has a problem and, you know, that was how he dealt with it. But, moving forward, you know, you know, and, and you can be on clear terms and open and be like, you know, th- you have to set a boundary and it's a loving boundary. <laughs> I can get uh, not loving you know, real quick if deal. I have to. That, that's but, an amazing uh, story. I said I can get not loving with them real quick if I have to. What's but that? The goal was to avoid it at all costs. I'm sure. I'm sure. So, so how long have you been uh, someone? <laughs> I'm from Sacktown, bro. I came out of the womb with one. um no i've had i've only had this gun i i mean i i remember shooting guns when i was like five or six at my cousin's houses we would like set up this little dollhouse with um with uh like stretch armstrongs and stuff and and we would i remember we had this zip line where if you shot the thing with our little 22 rifles then the stretch armstrong would like slide down the zip line and we would try to shoot him while he was sliding down it was like the most boy thing ever to take a dollhouse and turn it into a shooting range for bad guys of action figures. Um, I remember that. And then the first gun that I got was, I just, I just have a shotgun. Um, I have really wide hallways. This place is huge. So it, it is perfect here. But um, I mean, it, it's only been like three years or something that I've had it. Um, and. Got it. Um, you to get it. I kind of just love, I mean, growing up with one, loving playing with them. Um, I feel at some point in my life that I will need to stop being hypocritical and eating meat without being willing to 
take those lives myself. I feel like anyone who's unwilling to take an animal's life doesn't deserve to eat it. And so I haven't gotten, gotten around to that. So that would probably weighed into my decision. And then also just being in Los Angeles and the um, propensity that the city has for violence and the amount of people that are packed in here with the you know possibility of things turning south at some point and the need to defend myself and those that I, that I love that are here. Potentially, if all law is thrown out the window mm -hmm. and uh, people who intend to do you harm come after you, I want to uh, be able to prevent that. Like I've seen people who post these like, like a bug out kit, like if the apocalypse hits and like all the power goes out, you need this much water and this and this and this. And really, and when people don't put a gun on that list, it's so, it just looks like this is a list of things that you're going to carry around with you to hand over to the first guy you find with a gun. Like you're just carrying it for him um, because you're giving it to him one way or another if he wants it and you don't have a way to defend yourself. So um, probably we'll never hit the apocalypse, but in case we do, got it. I'm in Skid Row. I got you. <laughs> got it. Got it. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I understand where that thought process. Do you have a, do you have beliefs on guns before we um, move on? Uh, it's, it's difficult. I think like acknowledging the reality that guns are all over the place is, um, one that I struggle with, um, because I would like to live in a world where guns aren't necessary. Um, and, and, you know, certainly like I understand the whole hunting mentality and also recognize there's other ways. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, mm. I, I really, I, I have a fear of guns. Yeah. I've been in spaces where guns have come out um, and it doesn't feel good and it just feels really scary. And um, I don't think I would feel comfortable owning one. I just, I, I think I'd be more afraid of it and it injuring yeah. someone myself or anyone else in its vicinity. They're um, terrifying so things. There is something about the feel of that metal that holds its own energy. You could hold the exact same weight of metal and it not be shaped into gun form and right. it would not feel the same against your hand. Right. Um, so I feel that. And if there was a way to just push a button right. and all guns disappeared, I would push it. No hesitations. So I am, I'm with you on that. And when mm. we do talk about this other idea, um, we're going to talk about that a lot. So get ready for it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Awesome. Well, I look forward to it. We're, we're coming up on the hour mark. So this has been um, an amazing conversation. I'm mm -hmm. glad we, we really hit art, love, all the things, downtown LA, <laughs> guns, you know, it's, it, we, we hit it all. But um, is there anything you'd like to add to the conversation to all the, uh, the, the millions um, of love extremists? Out I would there love advice listening? from anyone who's got some sort, like we said, um, we're all running away from something right now. Um, but if people have lost something that was dear to them and have found a sense of direction, I would love for anyone to hit me up. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a piece on this right now, just as kind of as a self-exploration and um, would love help uh, working through those thoughts. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I might have some thoughts on that myself, but yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Um, dope. So 
kind of hiding out at the moment. The um, when I reemerge, you will find me at um, thinktank.gallery. So there's a newsletter at the bottom of that page that you can follow. And when we do have something that we feel like we can say, we're kind of like on pause between albums. But uh, some at some point, we'll have another album done and ready to share. Um, so that's a good place. And then I've been working with Great Co., um, the great company. Awesome. Uh, it's in ingreat.co. And um, uh, that's a, like an experiential agency that I've been working with. Very cool. Okay. And uh, I'm not actually. I have, on Instagram and all that's one thing things. that I got rid of through all of this. So we'll be back at some point, but I am not there now. So if you hear things that I have, have shared oh, and wow. still exist in the awesome. world, then the podcast is probably the best artist's real talk. Artists, real talk. Yep. And um, think tank dot gallery. Okay, amazing. <laughs> Glad to hear you. You you're off the off the grams. That's 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 amazing. Cool. So to take us out, Jacob, what is your favorite love song? And the most loving the song that I feel like, and just pure love um, that I've ever heard was uh, "I Wish You Well" by Bill Withers. It's a song to an ex girlfriend just saying all the things he wishes for her and how beautiful they are, even though he'll never talk to her again. Yeah, man. Mm, That's amazing. Bill Withers, rest in peace. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, this has been a great chat. Thank you, Jacob Patterson. Everyone check out Think Tank Gallery and Artist Real Talk podcast. And I know you'll be back with some amazing stuff. I'm excited to continue this conversation offline. Um, but thanks for being here. And to all you listening, thanks for listening. Please share this if it resonates with you. And appreciate a review on iTunes. you
listening to love extremist radio if you like this podcast please leave a rating and review on itunes if you want to learn more about being a love extremist check out www.extremist.love and follow love extremist on instagram and facebook find me also on instagram at ethan lipsitz hope to hear from you soon peace